Hi everyone. This is Viola Bunyaku and you're listening to Stay Home Podcast. This is a podcast helping to share your stories of lockdown during the coronavirus crisis. This is part two of episode six, Do Things Get Better? I have Dr. Navi Nagra joining me once again. Navi is a clinical psychologist working in elderly adult care. In the last episode, episode six, part one, we ran through an exercise to help combat our inner critic and make way for a more soothing voice. This week, we will close off Mental Health Awareness Week with part two, Do Things Get Better? In this episode, we're touching upon Navi's work with elderly adults in care and some of the systemic challenges that this care industry faces. We explore the concept that things get better as you get older, a concept that some of us take for granted. And by things getting better, we mean our mental health. This episode will also cover some of the wider challenges within clinical psychology and the narrative around COVID-19 deaths. I'm Dr. Navi Nagra, I'm a clinical psychologist uh, working with um, an older adults mental health team in the London borough of Newham. Um, my work kind of pre-COVID was mostly working in the community and thinking about kind of the mental health needs of those over the age of 65. And also um, I spent some time working in the dementia memory clinic where people come for assessments if you're experiencing some memory difficulties um, and that's kind of an ageless service. And now post-COVID, it's pretty much the same work, um, but a bit more focused on sort of shielding and the mental health implications of that and thinking about sort of staff well-being for people that are caring for people with either COVID, who are COVID positive or just older adults in general. Um, so, yeah, that's my kind of role at the moment. And how long have you been doing that? So I have been working in this team for um, just under six months. Um, but I have kind of experience of about two years working with, with the, a label of dementia and older adults um, sort of across the country in sort of different roles. Um, but this is my first time in Newham. So what was your, what was it been like then, if you could just take me through, what was work like for you an average day before all of this kicked off versus now? So before kind of COVID sort of kicked off, it was um, the kind of mental health needs of those in kind of later life. They're often a lot more different to, to sort of working age or kind of people under 65. And I know it's sort of an mm-hmm. arbitrary cutoff, but thinking about later life and the kind of implications of retirement, um, isolation and loneliness, physical health conditions which kind of crop up or get worse kind of the older you get and also sort of generational differences um, especially if your kind of friends or your loved ones have passed away or um, kind of differences with the current world and trying to fit into it. Older adults seem to have um, very different needs in terms of mental health and their experiences of day to day and it's kind of having a specialist approach to think about them and their kind of age related but also their context of being kind of a certain age with health implications. My day-to-day role was mainly sort of supporting older adults in the community with their mental health needs. Um, Either it looked like one-to-one therapy or um, family therapy because one-to-one therapy doesn't kind of work for everybody and sort of every, every culture. 
um, but also working with um, care homes and sort of doing a bit of liaison work for people who are sort of caring for people with a label of dementia and the behaviours associated with that um, and any kind of work around bereavement and loss which kind of the older you get the more likely you are to experience and also that kind of adaptation to having kind of worsening health or new health conditions or that adjustment to retirement after kind of working for a very long period of time and then suddenly having to kind of have this new identity where you're kind of a bit more different with having um, kind of less economic viability and um, kind of the routine sort of gets lessened. That's when kind of people's mental health seems to have a bit of an impact. And it's strange that with this pandemic, I think a lot of people who are not 65 and having to lose that routine and that kind of all losing their jobs um, or leaving, losing loved ones, there's kind of this parallel being drawn of older adults' experiences mm. before COVID and kind of what the world's experiencing now um, in lockdown and with COVID. That's really interesting. And I'm ashamed to say that I didn't really... I mean, I, I knew that the mental health needs as lo- as you know, alongside other health needs would be different for older people. Um, but I never really stopped to think about how much of a specialist type of care they'd need. Um, you know, I think we all have people in our lives that are getting older and it's um, you don't really you always think about their physical health. You don't worry so much about their mental health. Um, I know I, I, when I think about my parents getting older, I always think, oh, I hope they're healthy. And I, well, what I mean by that is physically healthy. But your mental health is, is just as important as your physical health. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think if you think about age as a concept, you can see it kind of being constructed so differently across different cultures and different places. But thinking about being an older adult um, in the UK and kind of Western cultures, I often think about kind of, the ageism people face and how that impacts on kind of people's mental health and their view of themselves and thinking you know like the government might call somebody who's retired or has physical health conditions as um, economically inactive or you see kind of media coverage of old age is often kind of thinking about death and dying or thinking about kind of the the strain on public resources with the aging population often making someone who's over a certain age feel like well I'm actually a bit of a burden on society and the way we respond to older adults as well and thinking about we often care for them and and love them very much but at the same time we have this very big fear of aging as a society where kind of thinking about the beauty industry and age anti-wrinkle creams and anti-aging kind of narratives um, almost like there's no you know aging with grace in this kind of concept is often something you fear um, and it's and then it's yeah. it's like it's something unnatural um, that needs to be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the fear when it when when you are that certain age, and then that that's what you see on the TV or how people talk about aging, and suddenly you look in the mirror and you think, hold on, they're talking about me now. So it's this kind of yeah, this, that point is in terms of the mental health implications. Um, that's why I love the work that I do. It's it's a very niche but also it's just having the understanding of of people's experiences when they suddenly become you know quote-unquote old um and then makes me think actually we fear it so much but it's going to happen to all of us so I don't know why we kind of think it won't yeah and would you be able to expand a bit more on you said there's lots of cultural differences um in care um, and how we respond to care as a society 
I'd be interested to know a bit more about that. What do you mean by that? Um, so I think working in Newham, which is kind of the one of the most diverse boroughs in the UK, there's a lot of kind of um, sort of non-Western cultures in, in in the borough, and think an old age and care for someone who's over a certain age um, or has physical health implications can mean something different with different cultures. So um, for if you think I often think about it as independent and collectivist cultures. So thinking about a, a kind of a more Western model might be um, someone who has been kind of self-made, this sort of capitalist view that we kind of work hard and we, we pay our own way and we make our own sort of decisions. But then if you compare it to other cultures where the idea of the self and the idea of um, kind of being independent isn't, is very different. It's often seen as, well, I share a home with my, oh no, well, I share a home with my children and I expect them to kind of look after me and vice versa. So that's a less kind of Western way of looking at it. Yeah. So when people come to me with um, experiencing mental health distress, the model of having one-to-one therapy where we're thinking about how that one person is experiencing and understanding the difficulties just doesn't fit that collectivist culture and that collectivist way of making meaning. So it's rather than thinking about, actually, let's think a bit wider and think about the family system or think about the position of the family within the UK. So if they've, if they've come recently or they've not been here too long, that kind of clashing of cultures um, is kind of like another level of places I can work. So it's just thinking, actually, is this stepping back and thinking, is the way of understanding this mental health distress, is it an individual level or is it a family level or is it a kind of societal level? And thinking at those three different levels whenever I approach any family that I'm working with. Mm. Um, and often the work is a trial and error, trying to sort of get to know each other and trying to find a way that works for everybody of their kind of mental health understand or understanding or conceptualization of mental health um, is kind of how I approach it. Is there a reluctance from um, ethnic minority uh patients, I guess, would you call them patients? Is there a hesitation from them to like put put their parents into care and do they only really do it when it gets so bad that it, they cannot manage it? Yeah, thinking about kind of care homes, um, yeah, there's definitely a re- reluctance, especially when care homes in, um, sort of in a different country or thinking about kind of UK care homes might not be the kind of same level of care or the same type of care rather um, that they would expect if they were at home and then there's that kind of level of duty um, and level of kind of protection because they're at home and able to sort of take care of them and then if they aren't able to do that is that reflected on them as a failing or um, or maybe kind of a, a, a display to the society or the kind of immediate community that they don't love their parents or they don't care for them enough so there's that kind of additional layer of that societal pressure which definitely shows some reluctance and I completely understand it and on top of that then having to kind of open up your family to services to complete strangers yeah um who are judging or you might not have good experiences with either mental health services or other services um from the public sector that well in the past and all of a sudden you've got to invite them in and and sort of discuss really personal things and that in itself, like that level of trust is, is earned over time. And I think that some mistakes happen when people try and rush in and support someone when actually they need, you need to build trust with a family first before trying to kind of go in quick. And do you find that you can do that um, 
I mean, would you mind telling us a bit about you personally, aside from uh, the role you do? Uh, personally, as in, so um, you know, what made you what made you pick this as your career? Yeah, sure. Um, I picked this career after. Well, I picked psychology as a degree first of all because I did it. I was good at it at A level, and um, then I kind of did placements during my degree at Brunel and had an experience of sort of clinical psychology, which is the field I ended up going in. Um, and it was just nice to kind of have that human element and think about the kind of mental health implications of, of, of trauma or different experiences and how clinical psychology can help somebody without kind of giving them medicine to kind, kind of, uh, or sedatives to quiet them down or anything like that. Just thinking about the different levels of mental health and um, kind of distress. And I think psychology does that beautifully where it can kind of cover the different levels of thinking about the context, the, the bodied experience, the family experience, the kind of all the different levels kind of come together really nicely in the profession. It gives all of them sort of, hopefully equal kind of viewing after I got my degree I suddenly realized um, how difficult it is to get into the profession it's quite competitive um, I think every year well the course I did I think 900 people apply and only 30 people get on so yeah so it's really competitive um, and often you have to have years of experience and some people have masters some people already have other PhDs um, and I was kind of going through this rat race every year when it opens up in September that I eventually um, got a place at University of East London and I trained there for three years um, and I got a doctorate as well as kind of doing placements. So you have to do kind of different rotations um, to a year in different sections. So older adults, learning disability children, um, adults, so just get a big, big kind of wide experience. But even before that, when I was trying to get experience as an assistant psychologist um, for those four years, I worked all over the different parts of the country. Um, and I still kind of, the, my feelings of the profession in itself and what I could do with it um, just got stronger and stronger. And I think by the end of it and having kind of ups and downs in my professional identity and personal identity of what am I going to do with this or what does it mean to be a psychologist, um, I eventually got to a position where I think actually I'll make it what I want to make it. And it's after these experiences of different places of good supervision or bad supervision or, or kind of good experiences with clients or good ways of working for me personally or places where I didn't fit in and understanding why I didn't. I could, I'm now in a position where I think actually this is what my view of clinical psychology is and, and this is how I want to kind of be seen or act as a, as a therapist and as a colleague. Now all face-to-faces have stopped because of COVID um that we're trying to do like telephone sessions and I think they want us to expand into video sessions but I think a lot of older adults might some of them do but not all of them have um video conferencing equipment but before it was um one-to-one therapy but also group sessions around kind of um just different needs so a group around sort of mood management if people are having kind of low or anxious thoughts they can kind of have that peer supervision together or peer support together rather um and then there's also kind of groups around carers so people with dementia um and their carers could sort of come together and think about talk about their experiences and how to support someone with that label or having different sort of cognitive changes 
and then um yeah so yeah it's a big very a varied way of doing things really from groups to personal to even consulting where actually in some situations seeing a therapist or seeing something is the idea of psychology doesn't fit that that family or that person's way of understanding what they're experiencing so often a psychologist can consult their colleagues their ner- the nurses or other ther- doctors or whatever who want to kind of discuss psychology um and implications of the person's sort of experiences um so there's all these yeah like different levels it could be from consulting to one-to-one to groups to yeah just very or teaching teaching was another thing that i did before so are, so i guess now that you're doing it all remotely are they struggling with that um being older and having to you know because i think the way everyone else is keeping in touch um is obviously through the internet and through technology you've got all these apps coming out of everywhere like house mm-hmm. party zoom and i don't know if that's something they're involved in um a couple are um that i've that i know of um there's also kind of email i think is like the next kind of step up from telephone calls but yeah mostly it's mostly just been telephone and then accessing the internet and learning a new skill um because of covid some some are like have this ability and then but some aren't and they're kind of very much thinking at the moment i'm more than happy with telephone conversations or just having think about deprivation just having a smartphone is actually a real privilege and i think not a lot of people have them um because again thinking about the need of being a sort of healthcare professional if somebody had a smartphone and didn't know how to use it i'll try my best to teach them over the phone or via kind of some kind of easy read handouts and stuff and see if that will work but then a lot of my clients don't have that so I think um yeah it's just different levels there's different barriers to accessing it not just kind of the cliche that you know you can't teach an old dog new tricks or that kind of internalized way of I'm not good enough or able to do this so why would I bother that's kind of the one way of looking at it actually it's sometimes as basic as they haven't got access to a phone and when you were doing teaching um did they have that sort of internal battle with themselves of, oh, you know, like you say, you can't teach an old dog new tricks and were they quite defeatist about it? Yeah, and I think defeatist in not even just learning, but also defeatist in kind of progressing in the way they look at things. So therapy, one of the roles it has is to um, for people to step back and look at how they approach sort of certain situations or certain um ways of looking at things and there was this kind of barrier actually well you know I've always been like this so there's no changing now but change doesn't have like a time lock it doesn't sort of stop at a certain point anyone can change anyone can have a different perspective anyone's context can change and then they're they're kind of a their kind of space to grow and do different things differs so not a certain person over a certain age has health implications means they can't, they're socially isolated um and they can't connect then or they haven't they've sort of slowly lost their kind of friendship circle or their family circle sometimes just changing their context was enough to kind of make them feel like they were more able to kind of take take on these new ways of being or, or changing you know basic things like going to regular community groups um connecting with others in a similar position in a group and suddenly feeling not as alone um was kind of i said i, I guess their way of of connecting with others just like we have social media or technology to connect with others who might be feeling very similarly 
um, they have kind of more community groups and, and other places like that. Okay. Um, and what has, how have they been coping with, have you had many deaths in uh, your particular um, area of work from uh, coronavirus? Deaths, yeah, I think it's been more kind of on the wards. So my work around bereavement and death, um, the COVID-19 has been with staff more than with patients at the moment. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, so especially um, kind of older adults with sort of preconditions or they were kind of had other kind of terminal illnesses and suddenly getting unwell. Um, and my work also was with families who can't see their loved ones because of restrictions on visiting um, and finding that really hard. And I think that's kind of the levels I was working at like a couple of weeks ago, which was with um, staff and with families. And the idea of kind of death and, and talking about bereavement and, and loss, it's often seen as a difficult topic, understandably, and having those discussions and topics um, staff just needed some support on how do we have these conversations and then that's when we kind of step back as sort of as a therapist sort of psychologist and think are we the best people to have these conversations with them as strangers or is it the staff that looked after them until their kind of last days that best position to kind of have these conversations um and so a lot of that kind of remote and thinking about consultation work was me speaking to staff and saying actually what's how are you feeling in this kind of your the spirit experiences of death on yourself um and then having these conversations kind of what are your worries and and sort of and sort of hesitate why are you hesitating and how can we kind of get around that and then family work around kind of loss it's it's even worse when we can't go through the same processes we usually will so thinking about funerals or um going to visit someone who's who's passing away or visiting somebody whose loved one's gone away it's just because of the lockdown we can't do the same kind of patterns or ways of kind of getting closure and, and going through and grieving um so i think that's been one of the barriers this kind of adaptation readjustment to essentially a very difficult experience and it's been kind of yeah i think that's kind of been my work at the moment thinking about how do we grieve in such odd times and and honor and honor the person's kind of life up to then but um the last thing at the moment is kind of injustice um around people over a certain age and uh, experiencing um you know or being covid positive or, or dying and i think um before covid there's been no secret that there's been health inequalities and ageism in in the healthcare system and if you're over a certain age there's this kind of the reluctance to treatment and the Royal College of Psychiatry even sort of released about a report around kind of doctors being less likely to correctly diagnose or treat older people than younger ones and they, yeah and it's been a long-standing and it's and it's and I don't want to kind of blame medics or, or healthcare professionals that's not what I'm saying what it is it's almost like an unconscious bias and we all have it um, even if you work with older adults or not, everyone has this sort of unconscious bias for people who are different from the kind of the ideal norm. So over a certain age, a certain ethnicity, a certain gender. So it's unconsciously always going to be there. And the, the systems around us support a certain way of being more than kind of um, being older or, or different. So I wouldn't sort of feel 
like make people feel bad as people because it's not a case of us internally being sort of being um, discriminatory it's, it's it happens unconsciously is that something that the nhs is working have you got like support and training to help people be more aware of their unconscious bias because i think the unconscious bias thing in the specific example you just gave obviously it's applicable um when talking about even younger um black ethnic minority people that are dying um, and we don't know the reasons why but it could be that unconscious bias is a reason yeah and where there is training um unconscious bias training and um and people are kind of sent on it i think one of the the roles of sort of i've had is to try and have these um they're difficult conversations because the idea of an unconscious process is we're trying to keep it buried we're trying to keep it from making us uncomfortable um, so it's sort of a defence for a reason. If all of a sudden we start telling people about their privilege and the way that they could be treating someone differently because of the way they look or they are, you know, it just doesn't fit how we see ourselves. We wouldn't we wouldn't call ourselves a racist or an ageist or a sexist, but ultimately we are. Yeah. And maybe it's OK to admit that and um, maybe the conversation is needed. So I think one of my roles is actually to bring those conversations and keep them in the conscious. Um, which often is faced with a lot of kind of anger or um, shutdowns or kind of other kind of subtle ways of sort of stopping the conversation. Really? So what kind of shut, what kind of shutdowns have you had? So I think the, so the profession of clinical psychology is um, like traditionally middle class and female and, and white. So those are the kind of traditions. And I think bringing in the idea that actually this profession is like that has been sort of shut down with, oh, actually... And sort of top trumps of different ways of, of saying actually well, there's not enough men in the profession. So and then suddenly all of a sudden it sort of deflects the argument or the, even the discussion that actually maybe our profession is a bit discriminatory and it sort of takes it off that topic. Um, or someone who identifies as white middle class and female might find that a really difficult thing to hold that that I'm privileged to be to be in this position and and and, and sort of associated with this profession and suddenly might deflect it with. Um, sort of other kind of what other ones have I had let me think um like really they're really really subtle so um, as, as they all are they may <laughs> yeah as are. they all are <laughs> exactly so they're, yeah they're just really subtle so it could be a shift of topic suddenly it could be a sh- it could be a blaming of the person bringing up the conversation and making everyone feel uncomfortable so I've had people say that maybe it's your issue more than an actual issue um and suddenly I'm like the the one who had the problem or the chip on my shoulder for bringing it up. So that's that easy, easy way of deflecting. Um, and I think with the deaths of people from B, it's now BAME, so B-A-M-E, um, backgrounds um, and being disproportionately larger. So the easy, I've noticed now that the very subtle way people are starting to deflect is just focusing on the physical health reasons. So vitamin D deficiency or... When there's very little proof and probably those people have a healthier diet than the majority of the, you know, the UK. (laughs) Exactly. But it's easy though to focus on a very non-racist topic, which is a vitamin D deficiency because vitamin D isn't racist. But yeah, but if you think about the power structures where people from um from that from a minority background are more on the front line or may not kind of be higher up in the management cycle or thinking about kind of that's suddenly really that's talking about institutional racism and very messy and very kind of difficult to feel and sit with so it's easy to just deflect it on something quite easily fixed with a pill such as a vitamin you know a vitamin supplement so that's a very subtle way of deflecting talking about 
the unconscious biases we hold. And I suppose um, that um, that applies also to our unconscious bias towards older adults in particular. It's um, it's more, I guess this is going to sound horrible, but more natural for an older person to die mm-hmm. than a young 40-year-old from coronavirus. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. one is a tragedy, one is a natural part of life. Yeah. I think I know what I'm trying to yeah. say in my head. Um, essentially, I just, I just want to know more about... Um, how it's perceived that you know the deaths the older generation dying within clinical psychology within the profession are you just adapting and giving the kind of um, treatment that you would normally or is there even more specialist treatment Mm -hmm. being given um, with regards to the black and ethnic minority groups in particular or is that are they still being treated as one yeah yeah um in terms of sort of reporting of deaths and thinking about kind of race and ethnicity they've never kind of been clumped together um so older age if so if i mentioned there's those older adults from minority backgrounds passing away that has a very different that elicits very different reactions to there's people from minority ethnic backgrounds passing away and the the deaths and, and and passing of people over a certain age um for me i've seen that kind of mixed reaction where it's it's tragic. It's tragic that someone's passed away, but it's almost it doesn't fit the the worldview we hold of actually if someone is let's say seventeen and passes away, that's wrong. That's an injustice. That doesn't fit the way the world works. Where you know that's that's the sorrow. But then if someone's a certain age, then it's, oh yeah, there's a slight acceptance that um, okay, well they were a certain age and they had physical health conditions, and you can just see it in the way the news reports it as well. So um, at the moment, and we we talked about this before, like not us, me personally, but as in like the 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 way um, before when COVID first came out, it was this idea that over if you're over a certain age and you've got preconditions, then you're at risk and you will be shielded. But then if you haven't got those and you're right, and then all of a sudden we started seeing more accounts of people not that age and not fitting that narrative of, of being older adults and being um, having health conditions. And then suddenly the risk became very real and people, the, the anxiety of kind of, of, of the, the country and the world kind of went up when actually this can implicate me as well. Well, before it's very distant and very detached. I think what, what I'm getting from our conversation, I've actually learned a lot in our conversation, but what I'm getting at the moment is, there is they're trying to put narratives out there to either calm people down or warn them against leaving home is what it feels like um and the narratives are just not are, are inaccurate and potentially dangerous because if you're saying things like well black ethnic minority people are dying more because of vitamin d then there's no check on whether they're being they're receiving the right level of care due to unconscious bias and whatever else we're just we're going to continuously have um ethnic minorities dying more so than white people because of because because people are reluctant to face up to um the holes in their narratives essentially yeah i agree and even thinking about um those narratives and, and avoid and, and the narratives serve or often serve those who are in sort of higher power so thinking about kind of um, government, but also those structures, we kind of want to keep them the same. So, if all of a sudden we started having different narratives of, or different conversations, rather, where we, where we focus less on sort of very um, containable biological factors and we started focusing more on um, 
yeah, like structural difficulties, then that will mean we have to change the structure. And then who will that benefit and who would that hinder? Often the people who the structure was benefiting the most in the first place. So it's almost like the, they're keeping us, those narratives kind of keep it safe and keep us all contained. But at the same time, they often keep the status quo. And, we, and I think once this is kind of over during this very intense and, and stressful period, if we ever look back on this, it, that's when we have that kind of beauty of hindsight and we can and, and then people in power have that beauty of hindsight as well where they could say oh you know we definitely understood that there was inequalities then but we'll learn from them now um but there's a rinse and repeat because this isn't the first time people from minority backgrounds or from a old certain age have had the sort of short end of the, the of the stick and I think that, like I said about the, the Royal College of Psychiatry's um, report on kind of how people of over a certain age are discriminated against and not getting the right kind of clinical diagnosis or diagnostic overshadowing, where we think about kind of um, a certain diagnosis might mean that you get less, act, you know, other things get missed. So for me, I think about kind of sickle cell disease often affects the black community more than any other communities. Um, and then people not having the right access to the the drugs and the the way you know people have to pay for their prescriptions when they have sickle cell disease even though it affects more people from the black community so then that it's almost like a, a structure which is discriminated because it's meant that those people can't get access to their meds as well or if they're in a lot of pain when they're going through a relapse um they need morphine but then they may not get access to morphine or they may be labeled something like oh they're just here for the morphine and suddenly the narrative changes from them who are patients who are in desperate pain to patients who are just there for the drugs that is crazy i did not realize that was a thing that was yeah. a perception within within the industry it's again it's unconscious and then even thinking about wider stuff of who gets funding for research so um Let's we can look at kind of um, research with yeah sickle cell disease and think about how much that gets or HIV compared to COVID or thinking about kind of other kind of non-linked racial or non-racialized sort of illnesses and um, again like dementia if you're from a BME background you're less before you were less likely to get diagnosed with dementia. Now there's a massive push before to from people from minority backgrounds to get a diagnosis of dementia, which I sit sits really uncomfortably with me, because I often think, who is this push for? Who's this agenda for? Is it to get people the right care, or is it to give this perception that we're giving people from a minority background a label to kind of say that we've done our job? But in reality, you could be misdiagnosing them because people from different cultures may not fit the way of diagnosis. So from my experiences, um, often when you give someone a diagnosis, you do a brain scan, blood test, and you do a, a, like a long history of their kind of cognitive changes, like how were they before, now, and then finally some kind of neuro, which is called um, a neuro test, where you just sort of, it's like memory and attention and do all these different kind of paper, pen and paper tests. But then if you're from... Um, uh, if you if you had inequalities where which meant that you didn't get enough education and you, you can't or English right. is not your first language exactly yeah. then all of a sudden you're going to fail those tests and it's going to look like more likely that you've got a dementia when in reality that may not be the case and I often wonder when someone gets a diagnosis and they come back and they haven't declined in the way you expect from a progressive like neurogenitive disease then you think actually wait were they misdiagnosed because they're over a certain age and they don't fit the kind of ways of what we expect, how, how we test people, which is mostly English speaking. So yeah, things like that. That's the, the widespread of health inequality.
in kind of different different I've talked about kind of like yeah the sickle cell HIV um, dementia and now we have COVID um, but it's the same structure the same rinse and repeat kind of inequalities leading to more death and leading yeah. to those people are still facing the same um, response and same yeah same like you say structure so does it does it feel like because you're also I guess an ethnic minority um, that you're pushing for this because you you can relate to these people a bit more and do you think that's important that you need to get more people from those backgrounds into these sort of professions in order to make make a change as opposed to trying to tackle an unconscious bias in the way that we're currently doing Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, representation is definitely a really really big agenda and there's a big movement in so my sort of profession of clinical psychology um, there's like a, there's been big movements of trying to get more representation but also now we're having a bit of a flip of the script and thinking about those who are in the profession who are from you know, sort of the, a white background acknowledging their kind of innate racism and sort of tendencies because there's only so much you as somebody from minority can do um and often that's kind of the inequality in itself where people from um, a minority background are expected to have these conversations and carry these conversations while people from a white background can kind of listen and learn and say oh i had no idea when actually that's inequality in itself i just think you know there's only so much someone from one those who are kind of um in a lower position can do when those who have got privilege how can they use it and become allies and actually and have those open and honest conversations which cause so much kind of distress and 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 kind of people's natural instinct is to deflect or to talk about something else or to shut it down very do quickly. you do you find um, that you have allies in the true sense i think over the in a in a true sense i think over the years i think before i used to think an ally once you have them you have them I think a true ally is somebody who can actually accept that they will get it wrong that they can be an ally one minute and then the conversation could suddenly change um where their kind of privilege or their defense kicks in unconsciously and then then the conversation shuts I think the, the truest allies I've had is people that have admitted their mistakes and actually acknowledged their kind of um that one down position that position to say actually I don't know I don't know what you're going through or actually um, I thought I knew and I, I tried to, and I used my kind of voice and I spoke over you and they and they kind of acknowledge that kind of power play. It goes up and down. The worst of being people that think, oh, I'm not a racist because of X, Y and Z. Um, and then when you try to call it and you can't call it out, actually, most of those times I think if I do try and call it out, then ultimately you put um, yourself at risk. I'm going to be. Yeah, exactly. My social position gets threatened, and then I kind of get yeah, kind of get labelled negatively. You get labelled yeah, as negative, most likely, and as a troublemaker, yeah. and like you say, with chip on your shoulder, all these things, um, which is it's easy for them to do, right? There's more of them than there is of you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the it's just that kind of if people can, we can start having these honest conversations um, about kind of being from minority background. Um, or actually not being from a minority background more so than and what it means to kind of what the concept of whiteness means for you and the implications of someone from who is white I think that's the that's the the kind of key and that's my experience of allies people that can have those conversations but just a bit more honestly um and own up to the fact they've got it wrong and me as well I think I've learned before growing up 
when and sort of growing up in the, the 90s um the way we spoke about inequality and difference is so different um so we think about the way the language has changed so we call it BAME now then before that it was BAME and before that it was like political blackness um and before you know and then before that probably something else that was like really racist now um and then growing up in the 90s um the main for me what I experienced was people often just saying I'm not racist because and then ending the kind of conversation there and you couldn't challenge it um and I think now I think I think it's easy to think you know I'm not racist because I, you know, I love going to Tunisia on holiday and I have a black friend um, or, you know, that classic line. And it's yeah. not about one or two facts about you. It's it's about your behaviour and your habits over time. And you're, yeah. again, like, like you say, it's probably okay to admit that we all have unconscious bias. I think if we were all yeah. to just be honest with ourselves, we'd say, yes, we do. But I think... The issue is the lack of honesty and the lack of forthrightness in, in, in dealing with some of these issues because it's causing people to die and because people don't want to admit yeah. certain things about themselves because it doesn't make them look progressive enough. Yeah, exactly. And actually owning the, the separation between the the unconscious but also the intention. So the, con- the intentional conscious thing that we're doing is saying, I'm good because... And then and sort of this... Um, and, and suddenly, you know, having this very positive view of ourselves and the self and, you know, our self-confidence comes from that, what we consciously believe about ourselves. And then all of a sudden somebody then challenges that and challenges not just kind of what we've done and how it can come across actually who we are. And I think that can kind of trigger this kind of actually, I'm, you know, I'm not good enough or I'm not, I'm not like this. And suddenly the defensiveness comes in. And then like I was saying, so in the 90s when I grew up, the conversation ended there. And it was almost like a, it would always end in an argument or a kind of disagreement, and def- and both would be defensive. The person calling it out, but also the person being called out. Um, and it took me a long, long time to actually understand that these sort of honest conversations have everyone needs to have a buy-in on it. So honest from the person who is privileged speaking about it and and owning up to their kind of errors and their kind of racist tendencies and their or discriminatory tendencies and then um me or, so, or someone else actually owning up actually you are okay it's okay for you to have mistakes and and not kind of jumping in with the defense of myself which is what I've had to do in the past like in the 90s where um I had to defend kind of let's say or even like the early 2000s where I had to defend you know acts of terror or not acts of terror but like at why and suddenly I had to be the spokesperson but also separate myself enough that people don't think that I'm a terrorist you know like it's just that kind of playing that role I've had to unlearn that in these ominous conversations too so it's it's a two-way thing it's not just kind of just one one side doing it yeah um, I think it's a social well, responsibility yeah. right mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I like about psychology it interests me too um I, I think that we have a social responsibility to one another and the ecology mm-hmm. between people takes two to tango sort of thing, needs to be maintained mm-hmm. by both parties. Um, yeah. And that is that goes for me, that's from person to person, from group to group, from government to society, that's, it's always a two-way process. Mm. And even thinking about lockdown, like just thinking about how the kind of public responded to lockdown initially um and then kind of the 
the kind of the lockdown in itself, kind of when it will end, I really want it to end. And now there's the idea that it's actually coming. All of a sudden now there's like, there's a whole different reaction of actually, do we want it yet? And it's just that managing that uncertainty. So it's almost like going back. So we, we broke our routine, which is going to work, let's say, if we're privileged enough to have a job for nine to five. Um, and then having that routine, then suddenly that stopped and we had to learn this new way of working, which is working from home or, or, or even being furloughed. And then, or if we're lucky enough to have that, and then now it's the, the idea of it coming back, we then have to have this idea of to go back to our routine, have to go back on those trains, we have to go back to work with other people. Um, no one wants and actually, that. <laughs> we don't, no one wants that. <laughs> we don't want that anymore. Yeah, exactly. I think we've, and again, it's that, that kind of adjustment. I think humans have this really amazing ability to just the situation initially there's this or there's always going to be and it always is this kind of um and this anxiety and this uncertainty and then it's having to sit, have to sit safely with that uncertainty you can never fully do it but i think it's just that we, we do some ways learn our new kind of rhythm and it goes yeah from now we have it coming back i think we'll initially don't want it but i imagine if we got it and then we had to wait two three weeks we'll learn to kind of learn to be with this new way of of, of being maybe it be, we'll be going to work less or maybe we'll be going to work with face masks on or you know we'll see how how people respond to it and then how we kind of what the new normal essentially will look like in a few weeks yeah it's um in a way i think it could be an opportunity to really implement some great changes because i think we were all burnt out if i'm honest it's the, yeah. those of us especially that commute into big cities like london it's Mm-hmm. it's it takes a toll you know some people are getting four hours of their day back just from commuting yeah what does that mean mm-hmm. you know what does that mean on your in, you know quality of life stress these are all things right if you're an ethnic mm-hmm. minority and you already have other trauma that you need to um deal with from you know past life or um in another country um and generational trauma and then you've got the fact that you're low paid um, you've got the mm-hmm. fact that you're in, you're probably not in great housing. You're not in anywhere near any nice green spaces. Mm-hmm. The impact of that, the stress, how you know, we are, we were already at breaking point as a society, and I just don't think that that's something that we can go back to. I can't see it happening. Mm-hmm. It's almost like we've now had this opportunity to face it and name it. And now how can we go back to our essentially quote unquote normal lives um, where we were able to kind of distract ourselves with, with work or, or people will be able to distract us with um, sort of different things that aren't related to that in the day, um, such as commuting or socialising or doing other things. Now it's, it's, it's almost like, yeah, being at home and being in these, facing these kind of traumas day on day and then, then having to go on after sort of experiencing them for a few weeks. I think, yeah, that's, that in itself it's it's a real challenge and thinking about yeah that once it's almost that once you see it properly and have named it and it's become part of the day-to-day conversation how do we then suddenly go back to not talking about it and not kind of acknowledging it as much um as a society but actually as as people yeah and just one final question i want to just want to know a little bit more about um how the staff you, you know you touched a bit earlier but how are the staff feeling about being on the front line without um, adequate protection and very little information? Um, from my experience, I think the 
there's a difference between what frontline is defined as. So um, there's frontline, and we think about what we mean by frontline, are people kind of in A&E and they're kind of rushing in and sort of protecting people um, in the, the kind of physical health side. And there's the mental health side of COVID-19, which are people facing people who are going through a crisis um, from the uncertainty, the distress, you know, mental health. The NHS doesn't like the saying to stop um, at COVID. The rest of people's health conditions and needs have always sort of been going on in the background, just haven't got as much coverage. Um, and PPE, um, or the narrative of PPE per se, which, which the media kind of ran with, it it kind of raised anxiety and stuff. So it had a it had it was it had a good and bad points. The good points was it had a, a reaction where sort of management and trusts, um, NHS trusts were showing like very visually that were providing more PPE and reacting that kind of media reaction. And those of PPE came through. Um, some of it looked good for media coverage. Some of it um, often this this week there was this query about kind of adequacy of that PPE. But I've noticed a big surge in PPE coming in with that kind of pushing from from as a reaction to kind of media outright outcry but then the other side of that was it erased the con of it was it erased anxiety and people that didn't have the right you know the whatever the right ppe was and knowing that actually am i going in without the right ppe i'm hearing on the media that it's unsafe but at the same time i have this kind of this um nhs heroes narrative which is con- almost contradicting it yeah. so we, ha- we all split we were split we're kind of like actually I shouldn't be doing this because I haven't got enough PPE, but then I should be doing this because there's this kind of NHS heroes, martyr, martyr kind of narrative, mm. which people are talking for every Thursday. So it's kind of like, you know, there's this split. We've got split between these two different sides. I read um, online uh, something that really resonated. It was, um, so when someone makes you a hero, they dehumanise you. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's happening. And it's like, you're a hero. Just get back to work do what heroes do. Yeah. We're going to clap for you every Thursday at 8pm. And that's about it. <laughs> and I, I, you know what, I did clap the first week. Um, and then mm-hmm. and the second week. And then I started reading up on everything. And I was like, you know, I, I felt like the clapping, maybe this is me being negative, but I felt like the clapping, I'm torn on this, right? So part of me thinks the clap is being really cynical and thinks, I don't want to clap, I don't want to indulge in this, because it is mm-hmm. buying into this NHS heroes narrative. Another part of me thinks, mm-hmm. well, I'm sure that they're all self-aware enough for those working at the NHS that they know that. So it'd be nice occasionally to show all frontline workers, not just NHS, that you know, you're appreciating them mm-hmm. by clapping every Thursday. So I'm a bit torn mm-hmm. on the subject. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, as someone who has been clapped for. <laughs> um yeah, I'm torn too. And I think initially when it first happened, um, a lot, myself and a lot of people were moved um, when we had these conversations because thinking about kind of people working in care homes, people um, stocking shelves at sort of supermarkets, all the all the key workers, if you think about kind of pre-COVID, the social structures, these jobs were not always kind of idealised or appreciated or kind of were quite low on the social ranking. Um, and the NHS was something that was often, I want to say, take, I think taken for granted is a strong term, but as in taken for granted in the sense that it wasn't as appreciated as it is obviously now with the health crisis, um, especially with the kind of subtle defundment and issues around that was going on. So I think initially moved because it's kind of like the first 
recognition after what feels like forever. And then then you suddenly realise, okay, second week, third week, fourth week. And you think, you know what, these cups, like, what are they now representing? We've got the recognition, but at the same time, people are, let's say the same people are going out um, more than necessary or um, kind of there's breaking those lockdown rules. And then we all, I said with a colleague, um, sort of approached me and said, you know what, actually, I think what will happen after all this, you know, once the cupping stops and, you know, COVID becomes a distant kind of memory, will we go back to kind of not appreciating them again and making fun of people that work in care homes and clean people's sort of backside for a living um, and things like that. So I think, you know, that's a very that was a very I thought a very insightful comment because actually history has a tendency of repeating itself and we move on and we have a very short memory and we will kind of mm-hmm. not kind of have the same kind of way of feeling or talking about it and and I think yeah that's my my view of cupping is I'm, I'm just a bit split initially the recognition was great um, and also the, the the term change I noticed how in before it was NHS clapping for the NHS, then clap for carers, then clap for key workers. And then like, because I think that's what I've experienced working. So I work with, with care homes. I kind of give liaison. I can't go in anymore because of like the, the spread of infection. But they were saying, actually, we don't feel, because care homes are run by private companies because of years of kind of privatisation of the NHS and thinking about kind of placements and it's more social care. So they're like, you know, I work for, I don't work for the NHS, but people don't seem to recognise me as they much as they do a nurse growing at NHS ads but I do just as much of the job probably with less sort of support because I'm not working for a big organisation so we kind of feel a bit forgotten yeah so it just kind of shows you what sort of country we live in to be honest <laughs> it's exposed a lot of things it's brought it to light it's not a new issue like you say um, but it's definitely brought it to light even um, care home deaths and testing so you know that was the other thing so people in this is more kind of my experience so people in who work for care homes would have clients who were showing symptoms of covid and um, sending them to hospital if they got bad also not knowing if you know would call up and they say actually don't send them to hospital leave them there um because they're not quite as bad yet and then eventually getting there and then either getting treated in icu or being sent back to care homes and said treat them at home so not being told if they were positive or not um not kind of knowing and I think if that's that's kind of acting ageism kind of thinking about unconscious bias thinking if this person warrant an ICU referral either because of do they are they physically well enough to even recover from an ICU intervention or is there kind of Mm. unconscious ageism playing out there where they just sort of sent them home thinking don't take up a bed so I think that's and the kind of narrative of bed blockers of someone um, who's over a certain age or winter pressures, which is often when older adults get unwell with influenza and other conditions. So those kind of narratives and biases have always been around. And thinking about care homes, you know, they were just overrun and really, really anxious because they just felt like, where are we in this, you know, in this PPP, PPE conversations or if this person... I have to kind of take care of someone who might be COVID positive, but we weren't told, you know, or te- they haven't been tested. And that's when it all kind of blew up in the media. And then that's when the government's rolled out the testing in care homes. So it's, again, that kind of reaction um, and the actual response kind of way of being. So, yeah, I've noticed that as well. This kind of like once someone, it comes to light, that's when something gets done. Um, and now I'm happy. 
like care homes that do feel a lot more supported so and what acknowledged. should people do then if they are worried about someone in the community um what numbers can they call and you know what's the best way to go about it um if they're not imminently in danger it's just a suspicion and it's based loosely on conversations that have been had mm-hmm. I think talk. I think talking to somebody about kind of their thoughts and their experiences is the is. I can't kind of say that enough. Often people think if I just do it without asking them, um, it can feel like a betrayal of trust to whoever the person was who kind of opened up to them and and had these feelings. And ask them, do you would you like some help, even a little bit of help or support? Um, often there's a lot of shame around asking for help or feeling like a burden. And actually, a lot of the conversation is that, that you know let's say of someone who you're speaking to is suicidal you can sort of ask them these questions of actually you you know you aren't a burden normalize the fact that they can ask for help and they won't be a problem and and if they still feel like you know if you still feel like you're really uncomfortable and you feel actually I'm just admit I'm really worried about you and I, I you know and ask them actually can I ask somebody to come and talk to you and see if there's anything they can do if they can't then you know that'd be the end of it and and you know these are health these are mental health professionals who do this day in and day out so you know there's always that worry about what will they do and stuff but sometimes let's say if a person's all alone um such as an older adult who's been isolated they may want someone with them to talk to professionals so i think yeah that's the kind of initial thing i'd always do is kind of just be that person for them to have these conversations to ask them for their consent to the referral or talking to a crisis team um and and things like that and then every borough has a different mental health crisis team and i think if you google kind of mental health crisis team and put your borough's name in um and often it will come up and then you can sort of speak to them on the phone and ask just get advice from them and then they will you know kind of do what they can and the other way is ring person's gp um gps have direct lines to crisis line crisis teams and can make a referral there and then um, so those are the kind of the main ways of kind of kind of accessing crisis support. Um, and if it's sort of not quite crisis yet, but they kind of feel like they need someone to talk to and they feel quite lonely and upset or distressed for many other reasons. And then um, also there's Silver Line for people who are over a certain age, that, a bit like Samaritans, it's like a helpline for, for loneliness and isolation and they can talk to somebody. And Samaritans is the other way, which is when people don't have anyone to talk to and they just want someone else at the other end of the line to sort of talk to them and, and hear their kind of distress so yeah there's loads of ways of going about it but you can't get over the first step of actually having that conversation with somebody and if you don't feel comfortable having that conversation with them either share it with somebody else the kind of having these conversations actually ask them the simple question of actually I'm worried about you and I want to kind of talk to tell someone about this and ask if you can share that This week is Mental Health Awareness Week. However, it shouldn't stop there. If you are concerned about someone close to you, please talk to them in the first instance. However, as Navi mentioned, there are many organisations that can offer help. A quick Google search should pull many of them up. If you're concerned to the point where you'd like to take more immediate action, you can always call the NHS on 111 and they should be able to assist. Thank you again to Navi for joining me for part two, Do Things Get Better. This is Fiola Bunyaku on Stay Home Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe as that is how more people get to hear about the podcast. You'll find updates on upcoming episodes and more at Stay Home Podcast for both Twitter and Instagram.